Brother Hal is going to come up now and give a message about the Word of God. And um, um, he can focus all his uh, energies on this message because he's planning in the back of his mind to go back to the United States today. And um, it's a long, that's a long way to come to give a Bible study. And uh, so we ask, we have attentive ears as the Spirit of God speaks to our Brother Hal. Well, it's actually more than in the back of my mind. I must return today, even though I would love to spend more time in Britain. I love Britain, and uh, it would be my desire to spend a week or two here. <laughs> Yet, at the same time, I have young men and women at Hartland College that I am teaching this term, and uh, so it's not that I don't want to stay but I have a larger responsibility that the Lord has appointed to me. I'm teaching them church history. This, this term comes around every second year. So um, uh, it's, uh, and it's a, a class that I love to teach, and it transforms my students because it's a motivational course. I don't just teach the dry facts of history. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I did not appreciate history like I ought. And um, I think it might have been partly because of the way my teachers were teaching the class. They would teach it in a way that was rather dry and formal. I would learn about the battles and the generals and the dates this and dates that. But it never made any lasting impression because it did not have an application to my current situation, to my life just now. When I was converted, I read Great Controversy. And that book changed my mind on history. The reason was because in history I saw the hand of God working, the overarching principle, the big picture. And that gave me some focus on how God can work in my life today. And so the historical principles that God has um, used over the centuries, over the millennia, have given me a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, and a, and a reason for why I am what I am and who I, uh, who, uh, or what I plan to do with my life. And uh, young people, I feel, need to understand that part of, of history. You see, God's church, God's true church, has always been the object of opposition, of hatred, and of oppression. And if you're going to study history, the only history that's of any real consequence is the history of God's church. Yes, there is plenty of other history. There's history of the monarchy, there's history of, of um, general history of, of any given country. But the compelling issues that we face today wrap themselves strongly around the history of God's true church. Now remember, there are two churches. There's God's true church, and then there is the whore, God's false church, or rather Satan's church. They claim to be God's church, but they are not. And they are the established church, the large popular church. God works with His people in ways that are opposite carnal thinking, opposite of human nature. And this leaves us with the clear understanding that if we're going to study God's true church, we have to look in the obscure places because they were persecuted. They were the ones who were disapproved, disallowed. And in fact, those who adhered to doctrines of the true church were often persecuted until they were caught and killed. And I'm so thankful that God has, however, preserved His true church. Seventh-day Adventists are not the children of Roman Catholicism, though many have come out of Roman Catholicism. Seventh-day Adventism did not arise from the, the, the great um, Babylon. Seventh-day Adventism arose from the hand of God. Neither are Seventh-day Adventists 
children or heirs or historical connection primarily to the Reformation. In fact, when you think about it, there's a closer connection with the Anabaptists when you study the history of it. There's a closer connection between Seventh-day Adventists and the Anabaptists than there were to the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, and so on, the others. But I want to take us back and look at something that is very central to the struggle that is going on in Adventism today concerning the ecumenical movement. How did the ecumenical movement come about, come about and why? But in order to understand that, I want to take you back to the very first century of the Christian church. Jesus had ascended to heaven. His disciples, under the power of the Holy Ghost, had raised up churches in Asia Minor and in many other parts of the world, in Persia, in India, and all over the empire. I wish we had time, but I would love to share with you the origins of the New Testament canon. Roman Catholicism claims that she was the one that decided who was, or what books to put in the New Testament canon. But that is utterly false. And uh, because of a variety of, of reasons, we know as Protestants the true history of the, of the New Testament canon. The New Testament canon was established before the last apostle died, which was well before the very first church council of Rome. In fact, it was by the end of the first century that the New Testament canon was established. And it wasn't long after this that there were certain Gnostic Christians who had accepted Christianity from their paganism, and they had they wanted to bring into the Bible some of their Gnostic ideas. And so they wrote some books which they hoped to be added to the canon. These books, however, were very quickly discerned as being false or at least not canonical and not from the apostles. There were actually some books that were written with the name of Peter or Paul signed at the bottom in order to try and deceive the people to think that this was one of the letters uh, that had been from one of the apostles. And therefore it should be accepted. But it was so different in character. And the unity of the text was not there. And so the churches disregarded them. Well, when that didn't work, they tried another strategy. And there was a man by the name of Origen, and there were others before him. But Origen was one of the most effective corruptors of scripture. He took the New Testament books of the Bible in Greek and he corrupted them by inserting or deleting things in those New Testament books. And he had some help in this. One of his students, Eusebius, edited his corrupted manuscript this became the text of choice for the Western churches. The Eastern church, however, preserved the um, manuscripts that had been handed down to them from the apostles. They did not allow the corruptions to come in. And they carefully guarded the authenticity of those manuscripts. Eusebius was a very close friend of Constantine. As I told you yesterday, he was a great flatterer of Constantine. And he wanted to uh, ingratiate himself to Constantine because he knew that if, he, if Constantine would become a Christian and the empire would be a Christian empire, he would then um, be able to influence the empire through Constantine as Constantine's bishop. And, of course, that's what happened. But not only the empire, but for ages to come, Eusebius um, influenced the, the church, the established church, the Roman church. 
in particular. But of course, that also had its influence on God's faithful. Because in the end, God's faithful were persecuted by the Roman church. Constantine became a Christian under the influence of Eusebius. He adopted a Bible. He had to choose which Bible to accept as the Bible for his palace and the Bible, the official Bible of the empire. And it, Eusebius influenced him to choose these Western corrupted manuscripts. In fact, that led, from that point, it led to a great controversy. A controversy between which text of scripture would God's people use? That has come right down to our own day. In the fourth century, there arose quite a number of mystics, Christian mystics. And these famous individuals would go off in the uh, secluded places and they would arrange to have a student or two with them and they would teach these students and then the students would then also become mystics and gurus of a sort back in the fourth century. This was a great enthusiastic movement that took place during this time and quite a few individuals managed to place themselves in this kind of, of context. However, there were also at this same time some great missionaries that arose. One of them was a young man that was born in Scotland. At 16 years of age, his name was Patrick. Patrick was captured and sent over to Ireland as a slave. There he served a family for some years and then escaped and came back to his home in Scotland where he accepted Christianity and became interested in soul winning. Praise God for that. His uh, grandfather had been a presbyter, which means that um, uh, his grandfather, if you pay attention to that, his grandfather would have been married. And he did not accept the idea of a celibate clergy. He did not accept the idea of many of the other Roman inventions. In fact, he knew little of them. He would have been the pastor, you see, of, of a church. His father was, was a deacon as well. But Patrick became so burdened about soul winning that he decided he was going over to Scotland to see if he could win the family of his former master and win his master. Hmm? I, what did I say? Scotland? I'm sorry. To Ireland, thank you. And he went back there and was successful, except he was not able to convert the master himself. But all the rest of the family became Christian as a result of Patrick's work. Then Patrick went out and went all over Ireland and raised up churches. He uh, transcribed scripture. He took the, the Bible, and the Bible that was, by the way, in use at that time among the Celtic people was the Itala Bible. This was a famous Bible that was from the Eastern uncorrupted manuscripts. And he transcribed this Bible and left it with the churches. He also raised up schools where young people could come and study, and they came from all over Europe to study there at Patrick's schools, to be missionaries, to go back to their homelands, and, and, and thereby win souls uh, following on. They learned also how to transcribe the Bible. And that the Itala language, incidentally, at that time, was a widespread language throughout the empire. Of course, many of the nations and ethnic groups had their own languages, but there was a, an overriding language of the empire which everyone could understand to a certain extent, and that was the Itala language. And so the, the, the lessons and their transcription work was often done in the Itala. And by the way, these Bibles were often highly illuminated. You know what I mean by illumination? It was, they were decorated, beautifully decorated. And they call those illuminated manuscripts. Patrick's work in Ireland was very sound. 
In fact, Patrick believed in all of the Bible. He accepted the full Bible, the Ten Commandments included. And this meant that um, Patrick and his followers were Seventh-day Sabbath keepers. They also believed in the Second Coming of Christ, which makes them Seventh-day Adventists. When the, in the 6th century, when the, uh, the monks, the Benedictine monks, came to Ireland to try and win the pagans to Christianity, they already found a large group of Christian people there in Ireland. And the result was that they were surprised that these people were not the Roman kind of Christians. They were of a more pure variety of Christianity. In fact, they worked hard to convince these people to adopt, to, to convince the Irish Christians to adopt Roman Catholicism. But they were unsuccessful because these people were loyal to Patrick. But more important, they were loyal to the Bible. They could see that the Benedictines did not adhere to Scripture. They were advocating Sunday observance, they were advocating worship of images, they were advocating pilgrimages to holy shrines, and many other inventions in the 6th century that had already entered into the church. And so these Christians refused to, to accept the Benedictine idea, and they had to go back to Rome unsuccessful. Rome was deeply troubled by all of this, and eventually began to stir up political unrest and war. And by the uh, Scandinavians coming down to Ireland and invading, they eventually subdued the Irish to the control of the Scandinavians, at that time who were easily manipulated by the Catholic Church. Well, Still, they could not get the Irish to adopt the Roman Catholic religion, even by conquering them. So in the end, they decided if you can't beat them, join them. And so Roman Catholicism developed a falsified history of the great apostle to the Irish, and they made him a saint, and now we have St. Patrick's Day because every saint has a day. And so St. Patrick was never a Roman Catholic, but they made him a Roman Catholic nevertheless. And in a few generations' time, after twisting his history, having said that he was sent to Ireland as a missionary by Pope Celestine in about the third century or something like that, the end of the third century, eventually in a few generations, the Irish accepted the story of Roman Catholicism. And thus, uh, Ireland became a Roman Catholic nation. But in the meantime, many, many missionaries had gone out. One of those students of Patrick's schools was Columba. And Columba was raised in Donegal, which is over there in, in Ireland, as you probably know. And then, as he um, finished his studies, he and 200 companions decided they were going to evangelize Scotland. And they sailed across the channel and came to Scotland where some of Columba's relatives were already in rulership. In fact, uh, Columba himself gave up an opportunity for a throne to become a missionary. And he came to uh, Scotland managed to get one of his relatives to give him a piece of land. But it wasn't a very fertile piece of land or a very large piece of land. It happens to be a very small piece of land. And it wasn't a very convenient piece of land. In fact, it was way off the west coast of Scotland. In fact, as you go to that region, there is an island. Of course, Scotland itself is part of an island. <laughs> And then there is another island next to it, a very small one. And then at the end of that, there is another tiny little island. And that time it was called the Island of Hy, H-Y, Hy. He was given this little piece of land, and there he built the school. The school's name was Iona. Now today the island is called Iona, and it's just off the co coast of Mole. 
and the island of Mull, which is just off the coast of Scotland. I've been there on one occasion and enjoyed my visit. Found it most uh, enlightening. It's a rocky, wind-swept island, but nevertheless, they established a school there, and many young people, again, came from all over Europe to study to be missionaries there in this little school. Columba went from place to place and preached and raised up churches wherever he went. In fact, in one case, or at one period of his life, in a, I should say in a seven-year period of his life, he was credited with raising up 300 churches. Now you do the math. How many churches is that in a week's time? That's almost one a week. Three and a half a month, just about. It's an amazing number of churches everywhere he went. But not only that, like Patrick, his forerunner, he was transcribing the scriptures wherever he went. And he would illuminate these manuscripts and then leave them with the churches and with the schools. You'll notice a pattern that in this history, every religious revival that has ever been successful in the history of the world has always had three basic elements attached to it that made it effective and rooted and grounded the people in the truth of God. It was itinerant preaching, publishing work, meaning to transcribe the scriptures and or in the case once printing was established, to print the scriptures in great numbers. And thirdly, educational work, development of schools. God has always used those three elements in every successful religious re revival in history or every religious movement in history. There was a fourth area, and that is the health work that was sometimes used, not always, but sometimes. At least we have evidence that it was used sometimes, and we don't have evidence that it was used always. But it may have been. But nevertheless, the health work has also been a very effective means of reaching the hearts of people with the gospel. Do I hear an amen? Amen. <laughs> Just want to be sure you're still with me this morning. And those uh, who were using this method were able to enhance their work. And I believe that it will be one of God's methods at the very end of time as well. It will be one of the four key areas that God will use. And by the way, literature work, publishing work, is a crucial part of this work, as is itinerant preaching and the educational work of schools. Schools of the right order. Well, Columbus School also made an issue of following the Word of God. The Bible was the center of the education as it was in Patrick's schools. And the young people learned how to not only read the scriptures, how, but how to interpret the scriptures and how to teach the scriptures to others. This, of course, was contrary to the Romish idea where only the priests could teach, where only the priests could study, where only the priests could actually understand the word of God. And uh, unless you have the holy water sprinkled on you and the papal blessing, you could not do so. You could not study the Word of God for yourself until you were sanctified, as it were, by ordination. This is all an outward works religion, and Patrick's students were unwilling to accept this, nor were the churches that Columba raised up. And... Um, when the Benedictine monks came in the 6th century to Scotland also, they found there a group of Christianity, again, not like the Roman variety. They were the, they were the, the kind that believed in the Seventh-day Sabbath and in the second coming of Christ, and the end result was that they had to go back to Rome again, defeated. Once again, Rome raised up the Scandinavians to come and conquer the land, and then changed the story. And Columba was sent to evangelize the, uh, the Scots from Rome. And they changed Columba's history and made him a saint. And now we have St. Columba's Day. And once again, Columba, a Seventh-day Adventist, was plagiarized, <laughs> if you will, and made a Roman Catholic. They, yes? Is it, is it well documented? 
Scandinavia. Fairly well documented. Yeah, you'll find that in, um, particularly in, in Wilkinson's uh, True Triumph. But as uh, time went on, other missionaries went out. Columbanus went to Gaul, which was at this at that time the area which is today known as France. This is before the Franks came and, and took over that region. Um, there was Ophilus, who was off in eastern, what is today Eastern Europe and the Balkan region. And uh, there were other um, missionaries that also went out to various parts, including some back to Scandinavia. But I want to make a point here that is, I think, essential for us to understand. Incidentally, Columba's uh, Bible that was used, again, was the Itala Bible. It was not the Western corrupted variety or the Roman variety. And you see, at this very time, Rome was adopting what we now know as the Latin Vulgate. Let's go back to the 4th century for a moment. During the time of Patrick, there was another famous man. His name was Jerome. Jerome was one of those mystics. And there, off in um, Bethlehem, in Judea, he was writing anathemas about anyone who disagreed with him and sending those anathemas all over Europe. He had such an ego, a self-centered ego, that anybody who disagreed with his point of view was considered to be a heretic. And he advocated actually persecuting such people. And his language against them was horrific. But nevertheless, Jerome accepted the uh, corrupted manuscripts of Eusebius and Origen. And he translated, while he was in Bethlehem, he translated the Bible from the Western corrupted manuscripts into the Latin Vulgate, which then became the Bible of choice for the Roman Church. And this Bible was used for millennia in the monasteries and in the seminaries where the priests were trained and prepared for their work. But of course, they were not very well trained in the Scriptures. Most of them were absolutely ignorant of the Scriptures. All they learned about was Augustine and other famous mystics and early fathers of the church. They would read the church fathers long before they'd ever see a copy of the scriptures many times. If you remember Luther's experience, this was what he claimed, that he had never seen a copy of the Bible till well after he'd imbibed and memorized much of the writings of, of men like Augustine and other of the fathers of the church. The conflict between the true church and Satan's church has always centered itself in the Bible. The Bible has always been the point of controversy between the faithful and the unfaithful. The Bible has always been that which has created uh, conflict between those who love the Word of God and those who wished to be part of the popular church. And uh, Patrick and Columba chose the Bible that they could use to p spread the word among the people of God with purity and develop a church and churches that were built upon the principles of true religion. But as, uh, as time went on, the Latin Vulgate became far more uh, adopted among the Western popular churches. And the, as true Christianity was overthrown by Rome, eventually they had to withdraw into the more secluded areas. And in particular, we noticed the Waldenses at this time. The Waldenses were evangelized in the second century, probably by missionaries from Judea, who came to their regions around the plains of Milan and of Turin, and there they evangelized and became, they became Christians. And once again, they were treated with the Word of God, particularly the Itala Bibles, the Bibles that were of the Eastern uncorrupted variety. They were not corrupted with the Gnostic philosophies, particularly on the divinity of Christ. The Gnostics did not like the idea that Christ was somehow divine. And so they would... Um, uh, corrupt the scriptures in this and on other points. 
As, um, as the Waldenses developed, they were not organized. And there was a man by the name of Vigilantius in the 4th century who actually spent some time with Jerome and other of the mystics. Paulinus there in, um, down near um, Napoli and um, over in uh, Jerusalem with another mystic. And, um, but he was very disgusted with mystical Christianity. In fact, so much so that he almost gave up on Christianity altogether. Until on his way back to his father's house, from going from Bethlehem back, back towards um, France, where his, uh, well, Gaul at that time, which um, was where his father lived in the mountains of the south between France and Spain. On his way back, he met a friend who, as they talked, explained to him that there were true Christians. And these Christians would be found around in the area of Milan and Turin and those regions. Well, as he went there to discover this true brand of Christianity, he discovered the Waldenses. And there he found that the Waldenses had a strong belief in the Bible, and they opposed uh, the ideas of the Western Church and the corruptions of Western Christianity. In fact, the Milan Diocese, there were Seventh-day Sabbath keepers right down until the 9th century. And there was a famous man, his name was Ambrose. He was one of the bishops of Milan. And uh, you may have heard of the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Ambrose was a very interesting man. He was a bit compromising. But he was a Sabbatarian. But uh, probably because his church was primarily Sabbatarian, he went down to visit Rome once. And his church members found out that he attended church on Sunday in Rome. And when they asked him about this, his famous remark was, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Isn't it interesting how that cliche has come down to us today? And we use it without realizing how significant this was in relation to the Sabbath. It was actually a statement, that a cliche that arose over Sabbath or the usage of Sabbath and the usages of Sunday. And yet we say it sometimes, we don't even realize it. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, the Sabbatarian Church of Milan eventually became a Sunday-keeping church, but not until uh, Rome had put so much pressure on them that they capitulated to the power of that Roman church. Well, after all, they were one of the close churches to Rome. Some of the more outlying reaches that Rome had much more difficulty, but uh, this particular church, the Milan Diocese, was one of the most obstinate as far as Rome was concerned. And in the 10th century, there was a bishop, a Roman bishop, that was in charge of the Milan Diocese, but he was not exactly enamored with all the Roman ideas. And so he would visit the people in his diocese, and he discovered that there in his diocese were quite a few people who still kept the Seventh-day Sabbath. And he documented in the 10th century that there were what is known as the people of the valleys, or the Waldenses, or the Vaudois in French. This is an important thing because, as you'll see later on, uh, this enters into a significant change that occurred to the Waldenses themselves. But going back to the 4th century, Vigilantius came in among the Waldenses, they fell in love with him, and he with them, and he stayed and lived and died among them. And while he was there, he raised up schools, which were called the schools of the Barba. Barba, by the way, meant uncle. These are the pastors. They were not called father, because the Bible forbid anyone to call any man father, you see. And of course, in contrast to what the Roman church had done, they were calling their priest father this and father that, like they do today. It's forbidden in Scripture. Christ himself forbade this. And so the Waldenses refused to call anyone their father. And they made their pastors barba, or uncle. And these uncles would manage the schools as well as 
be itinerant preachers. They would also transcribe the scriptures, and they were well-versed in the scriptures as well as in other languages, uh, including biblical languages and the languages of the peoples of the empire. These men were very wise, and they would teach their young people. Under the instruction of Vigilantius, they learned how to manage their schools and send out missionaries. In other words, Vigilantius organized the Waldenses back in the 4th century. And these Waldenses would go out two by two, and they would evangelize Europe as, it, as darkness descended upon the peoples of Europe because of Rome's power and dominance. The Waldenses would go out and they would evangelize these people. They would go out as merchants, secretly hiding the scriptures in their clothing and in their bags and satchels. They would come to a home and they would sell them some difficult to find products, such as diamonds or jewels or silks from the south of Italy, and they would take them up to parts of, and regions of Europe where they could not get these things. And so they would be welcome in the nobles' palace or the peasant's cottage. And there they would listen. And they would listen with discerning ear for pain. If there was pain they could minister to. They would listen to marriage problems or health problems. And they would listen to other emotional issues and things that people were suffering from. And they would pay attention to this. And when there was some pain, they would say, well, maybe I can help you. And they would quote scripture. Or they would quote one of the um, uh, great apostles. You know, brethren, I wish that all of you would be in health. You know, and they would speak these things to the people. This is what God says, you see. And this would charm the people because they weren't used to hearing the word of God. The priest would come when someone was sick and pronounce some mumbo-jumbo over the, 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 the person who was ill and uh, swing a censer or do some other uh, hocus-pocus. And this was supposed to be the medical missionary work of the day. But the Waldenses would come, give them a hot foot bath or some herbal tea, and the people would actually get better. They were familiar with natural remedies. And they would use these there to bring healing where there was pain. When there was emotional pain, they would speak words of encouragement. Tell the people that God loves them. And that they don't have to fear an angry God. They don't have to go on pilgrimages and penance and do penance and other kinds of, of um, works in order to gain salvation. In fact, we're told in the spirit of prophecy that the Waldenses unshackled the people's minds from the mysteries of Rome and the superstitions of Rome. And it laid the groundwork and a foundation for what was to come later. But the Bible that was used by the Waldenses was the Itala, and they committed large portions to memory. And as they studied these scriptures, they would put them in their heart. And they would live by them. They had a literalistic interpretation. If the Bible said something, they would apply it to themselves personally. Rome was quick to mystify it all and put it off onto other things rather than in a personal application of the Scripture, of the Word of God, to their lives. But the Waldenses had a practical application of Scripture. They would apply it to their own personal experience and they would share it with other people. In fact, if they weren't careful, they would speak words too much like scripture that people would suspect them of being heretics at certain times in history. And so they had to be very discretionate. And so the Barba, the uncles, taught them how to be discretionate with the word of God. And these uh, Waldenses were very effective in bringing the uncorrupted scriptures before the people. And this made Rome angry with the Waldensians. And she would send huge numbers of soldiers into the Waldensian valleys to try and exterminate these people who were spreading all of this um, heretical writings and heretical teachings throughout the empire, the Holy Roman Empire. And this was a great offense to Rome. But God protected the Waldenses when they were under oppression, oppression and, and persecution. 
They fled to the mountains. There's five valleys in the Waldensian Mountains today where you can go and actually visit the homes of the ancient Waldenses <coughs> and the places where they lived. <coughs> and these Waldenses, <coughs> there in the mountains would be protected by the terrain. There were places where you could only pass through the mountain pass in narrow, narrow spots. And they could easily set up ambush on the other side. And any of the soldiers would come around single file. They would just pick them off one at a time because they were marksmen with the arrow, the bow and arrow. And they were also marksmen with the, with, once the um, uh, uh, muskets were available, they would use these with gunpowder to shoot projectiles at the enemy as they would come into these narrow declivities. Even today you can see some of the places where they used to travel on foot. But um, the Bible was the center of the issue. Again, it was the Word of God that was bringing the light to the people. And Rome did not want light to come to the people. And yet they couldn't stop this work. They continued to, to spread the Word of God and... and um, Eventually, along came the Reformation. The Reformation was a very important movement. Luther, of course, God used Luther to, to um, shake off the power of Rome in northern Europe. But Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, did not realize how quickly this message of the Reformation was going to go around to the rest of Europe. But within two weeks' time, without modern transportation, without modern equipment such as faxes and telephones and email, within two weeks' time all of Europe knew what Luther had done. Marvelous. But why do you think that was? It was because of the Waldenses. The Waldenses had developed a network of people who were interested in the gospel. The Waldenses had developed a group, a, a way of communicating mouth to mouth that went very quickly. And God used this when the time of Luther came along to stir up all of Europe over Luther's uh, affront to Rome. And um, Luther was greatly burdened about the gospel. He realized that the people needed to know the principles of justification by faith. The principles of righteousness by faith. Because he himself had experienced the religion of works and that brought no satisfaction. It brought no peace. But the reformers, and not Luther only, but all the reformers, recognized that there was a problem with the Roman Bible. The Roman Bible was often used to justify Romans theo Roman theology and Roman practice. And they realized that it, thank you, that it would not be possible to purify the church and to reform the church unless there was a new Bible. And there was a famous man whose name was Erasmus. How many of you have heard of Erasmus? Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus was an intellectual, but a very timid man. He was afraid to stand boldly for the truth, like Luther. In fact, on one occasion he said to Luther's, uh, uh, to, I think it was written, written to Luther, he said, please, don't compromise me before the university. In other words, make sure that I am not connected with your movement, your bold movement, yet... Erasmus recognized that the church needed reform. He knew that the corruptions of Rome were unbelievable. He'd seen them himself. He said, he said that um, if there was a hell, it was built under Rome. And he said, I, he said, there's one thing that I will retract. He says, I used to think that, I used to say that the, uh, the bishop of Rome, the pope, was Antichrist. 
But he says, I have come to the conclusion that the bishop of Rome is the devil himself because of all the sin and corruption that was there in Rome. Erasmus recognized the need for reform, as did Luther. But they had quite an argument going on between the two of them. Erasmus' idea was that you reform the church from the top down. You work with the intelligentsia, the intellectuals of the hierarchy, and eventually that would filter down to the, to the bottom, to all of the, the people. And Luther said, no way. That's not going to work. You have to, there's too many vested interests, too much politics, too much power, too much money and corruption for there to be a change in the hierarchy. It serves their interest well. Look at all the money that comes into Rome as a result of the, of the way things are. No, he said, you've got to start with the people. You've got to go direct to the streets and bring the people to a knowledge of their need of reform and of revival and of reformation. Luther and Erasmus almost came to blows over this issue, and they wrote strong letters to each other. But Erasmus decided to set out and follow his, his own understanding of what needed to happen. And so Erasmus, but, but Erasmus recognized that if you're going to convince the hierarchy of a need for reformation, that they would need to have an uncorrupt Bible. And so Erasmus set about to pull together a Greek compilation which the intelligentsia could understand. And this Greek compilation was put together from all the uncorrupted manuscripts that he could find. And he compared many of these uncorrupted manuscripts with each other. And his compilation was primarily um, built upon the uncorrupted manuscripts that were available at the time. And of course, there were plenty of bits and pieces, especially here and there, because the Waldenses had left them all over the place. Even though it was a capital offense, people still had them. And he was able to find these and put them together and handed the uncorrupted manuscript of a Greek compilation to the hierarchy. What do you think happened? The hierarchy, as Luther predicted, ignored it. It didn't serve their interests. And so they ignored it, and this left Erasmus with very little impact upon the church as far as reform was concerned. Meanwhile, Luther had been to Augsburg. And you know what happened after Augsburg. The elector Frederick had it arranged that Luther would be abducted by friends. A friendly abduction. Have you ever heard of such a thing? a friendly abduction, and they took him to the castle at Wartburg. And by the way, the, the elector, Frederick, uh, chose not to know where he was. In fact, he, he told the, his um, helpers not to advise him where they took Luther. That way, he said, if anybody ever asks me, I'll be able to honestly say, I don't know. <laughs> a wise man, because in those days, Rome had a lot of power and could really put pressure on these political rulers. And um, there in the castle at Wartburg, at first, of course, the Romans thought that Luther had been murdered. And there was a popular idea going around that Luther had been murdered, and the people were quite discouraged. In fact, they became angry. They became angry at the Roman bishops because they blamed them for the murder. And they were about to rise up and do them violence. In fact, the priests were more, feared more for their lives when Luther was gone from them than when he was standing before them hurling his anathemas at Rome. They feared more for their lives then. The people were angry. But finally word came that Luther was safe. And the evidence followed. Because from Luther's pen, there were many tracks that went out and continued to go out that unmistakably were the pen of Luther. And so they knew that Luther was alive and well somewhere. And this calmed the people's anger against the priests. But it nevertheless stirred up a lot of interest in Luther's writings. 
But while there in the castle at Wartburg, Luther realized that his, his almost enemy, Erasmus, had done him a great favor. He had developed and collected together all the manuscripts of the West, uh, Eastern uncorrupted variety, and Luther took that compilation and translated from it into the German language. And that's where we have the Luther Bible today. In fact, all of the other reformers did the same thing. Lefebvre in France translated from Erasmus Greek compilation. The Genevan translators, Beza, and the others that were with him, including Farrell and so on, they all translated from Erasmus uncorrupted manuscript, whether it was a French Bible or the English Geneva Bible. Some of you are probably familiar with that. Tyndall also translated from Erasmus Greek manuscript. And by the way, you know the story of Tyndall. Fascinating story. Tyndall was a preacher in this country, and he went from place to place, itinerant preaching. And he would raise up people there who responded well to the gospel of the Reformation. But along behind him would come the monks. And they would preach along behind Tyndall. And they would undo all that Tyndall had done. And Tyndall wondered, how are we going to establish the people in the Reformation principles? They're so wishy-washy. They, they say amen to one, then they say amen to the other. Have you, are you, does that sound familiar? That's what happens today. They hear one preacher that preaches the truth, they say amen, pastor, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. Then they go and hear someone who preaches error, and they say amen, pastor, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. We still have the same problem today. How are they going to understand the truth if they don't have the truth to read the Bible? And so Tyndall once said, I'll... Um, oh my, I've forgotten exactly how he put it. But he said, even the plowboy, when he was finished, would know more of the scriptures than these monks. <laughs> and then the Pope, that's right. The great monk of all. <laughs> And um, he set about, but he was, at this stage, he was banished from the empire, and he fled to Belgium. And there, and by the way, God had this in, in his mind, because it was in Belgium where the best printing presses were, of all of Europe. The best quality printing presses were in Belgium. And so while he was over there, he translated the Bible. And in one case, he barely escaped with his life. The book of uh, Matthew eventually known as Matthew's Bible, or I should say, what, was, what became known as Matthew's Bible was on the press. And um, um, just in time, someone rushed into the printing press and said, they're on their way. Let's get out of here. And uh, Tyndall was there. Uh, unexpectedly, Tyndall was there. And he helped them to quickly scoop up all the manuscripts that were in process and they fled out the back and just narrowly escaped being uh, captured by the papal emissaries, whoever they were. But back in England, it wasn't long before Bibles began to show up in the English language. Now, I want to just for a minute step back and talk about England um, in the 14th century. 200 years before. John Wycliffe. You remember the story of John Wycliffe? Famous pastor and politician. Very powerful man in England. He too realized that the church needed reform. But all he had available to him was the western corrupted variety, the Latin Vulgate. But nevertheless, he knew that this Bible needed to be translated into the English language so the common people could understand it. And so he set about to translate the Vulgate to English. And he completed this and sent colporters all around England to sell copies of his English Bible. And of course, this was condemned by Rome. God never allowed him to be tried at Rome and, or burned at the stake or any other way. He died of physical causes um, there and uh, was buried in, um, uh, near his chapel, chapel there in Lutterworth, 
just not far from here, I guess. More or less, a couple hours drive, maybe. Nice little spot. Eventually, they dug up his bones, of course, in hostility, and burned them and put the ashes into the stream. And the stream, of course, goes out to the ocean eventually, and as a symbol of spreading Wycliffe's truth. But Wycliffe's Bible was from the Western Corrupted Manuscript, and the reformers in the 16th century knew that they could not use that Bible. Now, back in Wycliffe's time, that brought great light. It was one of the great steps out of great darkness into great light. If God would have brought all the great light in at once, it would have been too much for the people, and they would not have been able to sustain it. So he brought it by degrees, and Wycliffe's was one of the degrees in the process. He was the morning star of the Reformation. He began the process. His writings went over to Bohemia, where Huss accepted the doctrines of righteousness by faith to a large extent. And eventually he was burned at the stake in, um, in Constance, along with Jerome, his colleague. But um, then, of course, the Reformation process went dormant for a hundred years or so until the time of Luther. And then in the 16th century, we come back to England with Tyndall. And Tyndall knew that he couldn't use the Wycliffe translation. He had to go to the Erasmus compilation. And that's how that came along. And as these Bibles came into Britain, the people were astonished. And they were amazed. And many of them went off and learned to read. So they could study the Bible. Many of the people were ignorant in those days, especially the common, the peasants, you know, they weren't educated. They didn't know how to read. And so these, these peasants were uh, given an opportunity to, to learn to read. And the, In fact, the English Bible of Tyndall elevated the English language significantly during this time, as did the Luther Bible elevated the German language significantly. It was the Tyndall Bible that raised the English language to the quality of the Shakespearean era. You all know about Shakespeare, I'm sure. And Shakespeare, of course, is writing at a time when the English language was in its zenith, in its most beautiful and simple form. Nowadays, the English language has been greatly modified by diversification of the language and by uh, more specific meanings. They weren't as broad and generic now. The words are not as broad and generic now as they were back in the days of Tyndall and the Reformers and the, the follow-on of, uh, of that. But it was a very important impact on the English language. What we have today is not exactly what we had then, but it's, it, it, it's, it's nevertheless, it, it was, um, it's strong. The English language is very strong today because of Tyndall, although it is m much more diversified now. The English Bible, though, made an impact on England that was phenomenal. People loved the Tyndall Bible. And the Jesuits hated it. The priests hated it. In fact, there's an interesting little story that goes on about this. The Bishop of Durham was upset by all these English Bibles coming onto the scene. They were smuggled in, of course, in sacks of wheat. The bread of life smuggled in with physical bread. <laughs> in the sack of wheat, and uh, Tyndall had his friends there at the dockyards, and, and uh, they would sort these out so that the Bibles would get to the right hands. And as these Bibles circulated, the Bishop of Durham became upset. And he managed to express his anger to a friend of Tyndall, uh, or at least an acquaintance of Tyndall. And he said, what are we going to do about all this? And so the friend actually made a suggestion. He said, well, why don't you buy all the Bibles and burn them? Sort of jokingly. That's one thing you could do. And the Bishop of Durham thought that was a good idea. So he asked, well, how can I do this? And the, bishop, or the friend of the bishop, he said, well, maybe I could arrange that. So he worked on it, and eventually he managed to get quite a number of Bibles collected, Tyndall Bibles collected. And they were sold to this the bishop of Durham. And they, were, they had a great big bonfire, and, and they threw all these Tyndall Bibles, a great 
expensive Bibles and Bibles that were the, the work, hard work of, of, uh, of, of the man Tyndall and of many others who had, who had uh, jeopardized their lives as a result of trying to uh, bring these Bibles in to England. And um, the bonfire was a great big bonfire, and the Bishop of Durham was satisfied that he had, had a successful campaign of getting rid of all these Tyndall Bibles. Well, now Tyndall ended up with a lot of money. And what do you think Tyndall did? Here is an opportunity to make a better translation, and so he edited the translation he'd done, and it wasn't long before suddenly there was a greater flood of Bibles coming into Britain through the sacks of wheat. And uh, in the end, the Archbishop of Canterbury says, who's responsible for all of these Bibles coming in? And it just happened to be that this friend that had arranged all this was in his hearing. Oh, he said, uh, uh, Your Holiness, uh, the Bishop of Durham. <laughs> so that's a little vignette on the story of the Tyndall Bible. The Tyndall Bible survived very well. And so it, Rome could not overthrow it. And eventually, once again, she said, if you can't beat them, join them. And so she commissioned the Jesuits at Reims in France to publish an English Bible of the, off of the Latin Vulgate. And they began to publish this and send it all around Britain. And in so doing, they tried to convince the people to adopt this Jesuit version of the Bible, the 1582 that was a very famous Bible. When the Protestants in England saw this Bible, and by the way, it had all kind of notes, as all Bibles did back then, all kind of notes in the margins. And when they read these notes, they were astonished, and they were amazed, and they laughed this Jesuit Bible to scorn until it had to be withdrawn. And so today, it's a very rare Bible. They went back, and they re-edited and brought out another English Bible a little closer to the Tyndall and that didn't really catch on so they went back and re-edited and brought it a little closer to the Tyndall Bible as close as they could get it without it being a Tyndall Bible. And nevertheless the people continued to refuse to accept this Bible. Well, eventually the Puritans gained some political power in Britain. And the reason they, their name is Puritan was because they believed in the pure, naked Bible. They wanted to have the influence of the Bible alone, without all the marginal notes, and without all the other influences, the human influences upon it. They wanted to be able to study the Bible without those other influences. And so they eventually prevailed upon King James, who, by the way, was not really a Protestant. But because of their political influence, they were able to convince him to authorize a translation, a new translation of the Bible without notes. And without going into the lengthy detail of how the English King James Version came into existence, nevertheless, let it suffice to say that it was very systematically done with over 46 translators, or rather, with about 46 translators, and consultations with other scholars at any time throughout the process. It was an open progress, and um, eventually the King James Bible was released and the people have adopted it and held it ever since for 300 years. Now we come back down to our time. Rome is determined to bring all the churches back under her control. And one of the shrewdest ways is to get the people away from their King James Bible. If Rome can get them into an ecumenical Bible or a Bible that was built upon the Western corrupted text, as all modern translations are, excepting one. All of them come from the Western corrupted manuscripts, the New English Bible, the New International Bible, and so on. In our case, in America, we have the American Revised and the New American Standard, and the of course, over here, there was the Revised Version in the middle of last century, done by... The, by Westcott and Hort. These men were very enamored with Roman Catholicism and the Anglican Church no longer had its 
distinctive Protestant viewpoints. Well, it had some of them, of course, but uh, they were losing them quickly. The Romanizing movement of the Oxford movement had as successfully affected the British clergy, the Anglican clergy, so that they were now more favorable to Rome than to the Protestant ideas, and many of them converted to Rome, including their leader, John Henry Newman himself. And as, um, as time went on, these new Bibles gained prominence. In fact, now today we have so many new Bibles today on our, uh, on our bookshelves in the uh, bookstores that we don't know which Bible to choose. But what has happened in the process is that memorization of Scripture has diminished. When there's so many different translations in church, how can you manage to have a memory text, even for the Sabbath school lesson? At least an effective one. And not only that, the argument has been seeded with a lot of false information about the textual criticism of the King James Bible, a lot of misinformation has gone around about the validity of the King James Bible as if, as if to say it's from younger manuscripts than these older ones. Well, of course they're from younger manuscripts. Rome destroyed all the oldest manuscripts of the Eastern uncorrupted variety because of the heretics. And every time she persecuted the heretics and managed to overcome them, she would overthrow their libraries and destroy their books, including their Eastern uncorrupted manuscripts. So no wonder they're of more later um, variety, more, you know, more recent variety of manuscripts. That doesn't make them any less valid just because they're younger. And some people think that just because something is, is translated from an older manuscript makes it a better Bible. Well, that's not true. Depends on which manuscript that's older that it was translated from. It was translated from the corrupted manuscripts, it will not be a pure Bible. You can't have a pure thing from a corrupted fountain. So, as we come down to the end of time, I know, the time is up. Rome is seeking to establish a unity with all the other churches, and one of the primary ways in which she does this is through her ecumenical Bibles. The first edition of the New International Version of the Bible was had a preface that very clearly stated that this Bible was for the purpose of uniting all the churches on doctrine. It was a Bible that all churches could read. Even today, I would say this, the Waldensians have lost their distinctive theological heritage. Unfortunately, they have adopted certain aspects of the ecumenical movement. Though they don't want to join with Rome, they nevertheless have uh, accepted the view that... Um, they can have reconciled denominationalism, meaning that they can be reconciled and not in hostility with anyone else, including Rome, but they still will have their distinctive uh, religion. But again, throughout the centuries and now in our time, the great struggle is over the Bible itself. And Satan would love to take your attention away from the Bible so that you would not have a knowledge of what leads to salvation. And many of God's people in the Seventh-day Adventist Church are also losing their footing and their bearing in the Scriptures. Let us not let go of our authorized version. It is God's Bible, not that this Bible is perfect. There are scribal errors here as well. But this Bible does not have an agenda in its errors, or I should say in its scribal mistakes. There's a big difference in that. May the Lord bless us and help us Thank you for your attention and for your fellowship this weekend. I have certainly enjoyed the time we've spent together. And it's been good to be here with you.